Defoe is Daniel Defoe. Not Willem? No. Sad. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Chindell, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Chapter 24, Wince and Wither. And this is Wither. So this is part two. Uh, Last time we talked about the last chapter, which was Wince. And looking up the definition of whence, it was looking at the past, where we came from, and whither is where we're going. What we're doing next? The location where it is going. Location with which it is going. So she's talking about, based on our past, based on what we know, what do we do now? Right? Yeah. I, I, had, a, I had a really hard time with this chapter and understanding what on earth she was actually talking about i think i think part of it had to do with the fact that she cut her talk in two Mm -hmm. and had to find a a page break to make it two chapters or i guess two parents review articles i could see that And, and so look i had i had to read it a number of times and then like write my own outline for it to, to get a grasp on what was happening. So this is one, I don't know if you looked in the back, but this is one that the uh, appendix questions are actually pretty helpful. They're not just the headings. No. Oh. Which I thought was very interesting. So where what I got, just kind of a, as an overview, is backing up to the last chapter, a lot of that was talking about actually – the education system and and where that was and where it went as well as children and how they were how they were viewed okay and so this didn't jump straight into wither for me it it took a it took until page about page 60 60 261 to get to wither in in my opinion mm-hmm. and so then she's talking about both the physical and the spiritual evolution and then what wisdom is and how that relates to children. Mm-hmm. And then she gets into where we're going and, and how we're changing things up. That's, that's the, the kind of outline that I, I got. So we had a pastor in Albuquerque who liked to break down passages in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, in in the letters, into two different categories. Things were either indicatives or imperatives. The indicatives are things that that indicate something. They're, They're truths. You speak a truth. The imperative is what do you do based on that truth? So you first say an indicative and then you say an imperative. So it's a truth and then uh, what do you, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. And it seems like this chapter breaks down pretty pretty easily, right where you said it, at that two sixty one page mark, about halfway down, where the first of it is those indicatives, like these are truths about people and children and how they learn. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of it is, okay, so because we know that those are true, what do we do? How do we teach our children? Okay. And so what I saw is there she gave five imperative statements on what we should do to train children in the in the second half of this chapter. And we'll get there. But first she talks about the sciences that we are to train children to observe. She talks about the arts we're to train children to appreciate art and and create art. We'll get there, but you're doing it now. I'm, I'm going to go through real quick okay. because it's where we're going. Children should learn to care for books. And as a part of caring for books, they should they should be given good books and not twaddle. And then children should be brought up to live for all men. Uh, they should have a concept of charity. And then 
She says in the last year, children should not hear of imposters. And I'm not quite sure what that means. I'd like to dive into that when we get there. But then she also moves into uh, service some more after that. So she has five five imperative statements of what we should do to tra- to train our children to grow into adulthood. And I don't I don't know if that helps or not. I I had to I had to read through this one. I think it was I think I read through it at least twice before I started actually trying to piece it together just to just to wrap my head around where she started, where she was going, what her thought process is. So that's that's how I saw the chapter breakdown. Mm-hmm. Kind of right along the same lines with just different words. Well, cool. That means after enough studying and tearing it apart, we came to the same place. Yeah, we seem to have come to the same place, which is good, I think. We're reading the same thing, so. Yeah, well, it doesn't always mean you get the same thing out of it. See the Bible. Very true. Yeah. Okay, so chapter 24. The physical and psychical. Psychical? I think so. I, I, I'm actually, we were recording this out of order this time. And so I haven't gone through and pronounced all the words. <laughs> That's true. I would, I would think that would be psychical. Psychical. So, yeah, the physical and psychical evaluations. That would be evolutions. Evolutions is also the correct word. <laughs> so the in the study questions, she starts out with the two questions, how are children great and what is wisdom? So as you're as we're looking through this, those are her first two. Those are her first two points that she's getting to. Well, and she is. Very firmly in the throes of the evolutionary theory transition, um, in and which this has been going on for for many many years, but then in 1859 is when Darwin published Origin of Species. Oh, okay. And 1871 is when he published The Descent of Man. So, on the forefront of the public's awareness and knowledge not just in the scientific community is this theory of evolution gotcha so it is a very large like like she said it's a bulliversement of thought it's an inversion typically violent an upset or an upheaval summed up in this term evolution so it's it's this massive change Mm -hmm. and she's saying yes okay we can ex- accept that for children physically. But the the psychical evolution, on the other hand, is not only not proven, but the weight of existing evidence appears to go in the opposite way. Not that they grow in in their, their psyche, but that they diminish. Hmm. Which is where she's saying children are greater than the grown man or woman they have almost unlimited powers of loving and trusting of discriminating and of apprehending of perceiving and of knowing compared to the blunted sensibilities and slower apprehension of the grown man or woman of the same caliber so we don't think of gross from less to more or from small to great but the spiritual life is a little different because as you grow you go through a dulling of all of those things (coughs) Mm mm-hmm Interesting. Which, you know, goes back to where Jesus was saying you need to be like a child. You need to to become more like a child to understand things. Right. Because as we grow, we become cynical. We want clear and precise reasons for what we believe. We we don't want to trust without without absolute certainty that what we're being told is correct. Mm-hmm. And she sees that as a strength of children. Yeah. And again, puts, goes back to the Bible and says, you know, he grew in wisdom and in stature. So she differentiates between intelligence and wisdom, mm-hmm. where intelligence is, uh, it, she doesn't define it here. She doesn't, but you typically define intelligence as knowing things. Yeah. So it, it's not that 
children increase in their intelligence, their their capability of knowing things. Right. But they do increase in wisdom, in knowing how things relate to each other. And this was interesting. She broke down wisdom as the recognition of relations. The first one was time, space, and matter. Mm-hmm. So natural relations. The second was love, justice, and duty, or moral relations. The third is our own being, our mental relations. And then the fourth is our relation to God, or religion. And we learn that little by little in that order. Mm-hmm. So I looked back to the principles in her her principle 13 is where she talks about or where she says education is the science of relations. That is that a child has natural relations with a vast number of things and thoughts. So we must train him upon physical exercises, nature, handicrafts, science, and art, and upon many living books. For we know that our business is not to teach him about anything, well, not to teach him all about anything, but to help him make valid as many as may be of those first-born affinities that fit our new existence to existing things. So in, in this translation, or to, to paraphrase, education is growing in wisdom, not applying intelligence. Right. Not, not teaching him everything, not giving him intelligence, but helping him grow in wisdom to make those connections. Yeah. And that makes sense. And with that comes, and she talks about this in a little bit when she starts talking about books, uh, all men are interested in science. Uh, We'll get there. But she says the knowledge of nature, which we get out of books is not real knowledge. The use of books is to help the young students to verify facts. He has already seen for himself. Mm -hmm. So as you're making relations between things, you're learning about them. And then you can learn the specifics of them and and gain the knowledge of those things, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. So she says that there are differences in the measures of men is evident enough, but it is well that we should realize the nature of these differences, that they are differences in kind and not in degree. And to depend upon what we glibly call the laws of heredity which bring it to pass that man in his various acts aspects shall make up that conceivably perfect that conceivably perfect whole passable to mankind possible possible to mankind wow reading is hard right now <laughs> so i'm not quite sure where she's going at here other than that people are different than other people i think it's a contradiction to a popular belief of the time because looking on it, this is quite a different thing from the notion of a small, feeble measure of heart and intellect in the child that grows by degrees into the robust, noble spiritual development. So this is, again, back to that first page, the physical and psych- psychical evolution. And so he's, he's saying that the child goes from small and feeble to robust and noble. And she's saying mm, they're they're different, but in kind, not in degree. So... It's all there, hmm. but different. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> I, I, that makes sense. I mean, that, that makes as much sense as anything else here, especially since she does seem to be contradicting the pre- the prevalent thought of the day mm-hmm. in that a children's psyche will develop on an evolutionary line. And so, therefore, the heredity is all that matters. Mm-hmm. She... Through through past writings of hers in this book, she's already decried that notion mm-hmm. that who you will become is based on what you do, what you learn, what your character becomes, not where you were born, who you were born to. And while it has an effect, it's not the main major effect. Or at the very least, it's not the only. Mm-hmm. It's not the only thing that affects who you will become. Yeah, because there are lots of there are lots of things that go into that recipe of who you will become that, yes, heredity is a part of it. Yes, where you grow up is a part of it. Yes, your education is a part of it. All of these things play a role in who you will become. And none of them is the only reason that you will become 
who mm-hmm. you will be. And so I, I get the feeling that she's trying to decry that, that notion of heredity here, saying that, no, people are different, but people are different because they are, not because of their parents or their race or their culture. The, those are differences, yes, but that's not what makes people different, mm-hmm. at least in terms of wisdom and intelligence. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing that she's going for here is that all people can learn the the science of relations. A child can learn how to relate things, and a child will learn how to relate things. Mm-hmm. And then she goes back to, what do you consider a child? So this this goes into, again, one of her, her very first principle is children are born persons. Mm-hmm. And both this chapter and last chapter have been very much harping on that concept of personhood. Right. Uh, this is last chapter. We find the children with intelligence more acute, logic more keen, observing powers more alert, moral sensibilities more quick, love, faith, and hope more abounding. In fact, in all points, like as we are, only much more so, but absolutely ignorant of the world and its belongings, of us and our ways, and above all, how to control and direct and manifest the infinite possibilities which, with which they are born. She hops right back into that. Mm-hmm. We confound, we despise them, even if we have the best intentions. We confound the immaturity of their frames, so their physical stature. And their absolute ignorance as to the relation of things with spiritual impotence. Whereas, again, the intellectual power so keen, moral sense so strong, and spiritual perception so piercing as in the days of childhood. So, again, because we look down on them as smaller and less than, we as a general term, we miss the fact that they are just as intelligent, intellectual and intelligent and perceptive as we are, if not more so. And all they're missing is they the have an absolute ignorance to the relation of things. And so it, it, it's, it's harped, up, harped upon again. She, so she starts there and, and so then what does she say after that? She says, based on the fact that children, they, they do have – intellectual power and moral sense and spiritual perception, then what do we do? It changes how we educate them. Yeah, it absolutely does. She says our education of children will depend upon the conception we form of them. That nolens volens means like it or not. (laughs) So like it or not, our education of children will depend upon the conception we form of them. So if we think of children as dim-witted slow creatures, then we'll teach them and they'll grow into being dim-witted slow creatures because that's how we will treat them. There's there's a couple of know, anecdotal studies in the, the system, the testing system in, in Britain. You know, you would test and then you take your cream of the crop and send them to the higher schools. Mm-hmm. So the schoolmaster was like, hey, took some people that didn't score at the top you know, relatively astute children, but they did not score well. Sent them, fudged their scores and sent them on. And they performed just as well or better than the kids that had scored at that top level Mm. because they were held to that standard. They rose to what they were being. Oh, interesting. um, What was being expected of them. Interesting. And 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 you you rise to the level that you're expected to, to meet, to hit. Well, and a rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. So even if you're at the bottom of the class of ridiculously intelligent people, you're still a part of that group of ridiculously intelligent people. And and who you surround yourself with influences who you become. Yeah, absolutely. So So our view of children influences how we teach them and what they become. Yeah. Not to put any pressure on anyone. <laughs> so, so she says, okay, now that we have settled for ourselves, that both we and the children alike alike live for the advancement of the race, 
we settled that when <laughs> and where where were we talking about that at all it's I, so she didn't talk about it here i don't think no i think she does talk about it here she says uh if we regard them as instruments fit and capable for the carrying out of the divine purpose in the progress of the world we shall endeavor to discern the signs of the times perceive in what directions we're being led and prepare the children to carry forward the work of the world by giving them vitalizing ideas concerning at any rate some departments of that work. So that seems to be. Well, it, okay, she mentions it. Yeah. But this, this having settled it <laughs> sounds like she's just spent 20 minutes talking about the advancement of the race Where and the fact that we and the children live for that. Where it's only a sentence. Yeah. And it's only a tangential sentence too. It's not, this is not where everything was going. Yeah. I thought this was also kind of an aside. Like, oh yeah, by the way. And it works. I mean, it's, it's, it makes sense. Well, it's something we talked about early on in the book. Oh, it's her transition sentence. That's what it is. So now that we know that they're fitted to receive the ideas for which is the inspiration of life, we must next consider in which directions we try to set up spiritual activities in the children. Yeah, I feel like it was a little abrupt and a cop or uh, an editor would have looked at it and been like, no, you need to rewrite this so that it makes sense. Possibly. What's interesting, though, is I think in this direction of spiritual activities, I don't think she's talking about solely, again, solely sacred things. Mm -mm. Because the this spiritual activity is the trans, transmission of ideas. Right. So it's not spiritual in the sense of religion. It's spiritual in the sense of body versus spirit. Right. I think you're right there. She she conflates those two words on a, on a regular basis. She'll talk about the spirit being what tra- what what moves ideas, but then she also talks about the the Holy Spirit capitalizing it. And I think you're right. I think this is her talking about spirit as compared to to body and the conveyance of ideas. So we need to set up activities, spiritual activities. Activities that are ripe for the conveyance of ideas. Mm-hmm. So, whence is the potency of the child? Whither is in the thought of the day? I felt like this was kind of the conclusion of what she was writing up until this point. I I, I didn't see anything in here that struck me. It indicates the direction in which the race is making progress. And she says, you know... Basically, right now, that's in science. And we've talked many times about how science is is and will continue to explode, both science and technology, yeah. from this point. And, and it's interesting how she brings up again that a higher power, the nature herself, is giving these ideas into minds that are now prepared to receive them. And, and that's how the advancement happens. Which... Also is another nice little transition. She's continuing to transition. So she uses these two paragraphs to go to, to talk about children, to talk about the, the indicatives. This is, this is who children are. This is how we need to treat children. This is why we need to educate children. This is why it's important. Science is important. Okay, now let's talk about teaching children science. Mm-hmm. So it's not the greatest of transitions, but but it is a transition. Well, it, it's you know this is our wins based basing our history mm-hmm. and and our knowledge. So whither are we going? So it it is. I mean, big. that's a good transition. It's the transition from I don't know seeming. Well, I guess she's talking about science the whole way though. Well, and, and like you said, that's the indicatives versus the imperatives. Right. She's now set this all up. Yeah. And now she's heading out. Yeah, which is right where I drew in some giant arrows to tell me where the indicatives and the imperatives split. So she moves on to the next section, all men are interested in science. And this is where I stole the quote I read a little bit earlier. She she tells a, a, short, a quick story here about the president of the British Association who was lamenting that the progress of science was greatly hindered 
by the fact that we no longer have field naturalists, close observers of nature. And that a literary journal made the remark that that everything's written in books, and so we don't need to go to nature herself. It's all there. We can go read the book. Not a big deal. We don't need to actually go study nature. Someone else did it. We can read about it. And that's where she she brings up this quote. She says, the knowledge of nature, which we get out of books, is not real knowledge. The use of books is to help the young student to verify facts he has already seen for himself. So we need to be nature lovers. We need to have intimate acquaintance with every natural object within, within our reach. And this is the first and possibly the best part of every child's education. This goes back to chapter 17 where she's talking about sensations and feelings and the sensations are educable by parents. Yeah. And it goes into how to cultivate that with object lessons and with nature's teaching. And, and one thing that a Charlotte Mason education is criticized for is a lack of science, believe it or not. I could believe it. But a lot of that comes from the fact that she doesn't start formal official science until, I think, Form 2, which is fourth grade. So all the way up through about third grade, the major source of science is through nature and nature lore and nature study and observation and and these these types of things where hmm. a lot of science curriculums dive into you know how and what and, and specifics and specifics and uh, honestly I don't even know but it's there so much earlier whereas she she delays it she delays the formal knowledge of it because she wants children making connections themselves. Correct. And then once you start bringing up the formal knowledge of it, like she says here, the formal knowledge is verifying the facts the student has already seen mm -hmm. or making the picture clear. Well, and we were talking about classification the other day when she brought it up. And it's not that the child doesn't know it or doesn't know these various things, but that finally there's classification and words for it. Other people have also done this classification and this is how they did it too. And here, here's the formal agreed upon method for it, which makes sense. How much science can a child really understand and comprehend in fourth grade, especially I, I don't know. if they've not gotten their hands on it? Yeah. She wants to have the children be trained to observe, to be in a position to do just the work which is most needed, to be a close, loving observer of nature at first hand, storing these facts and free from all impatient greed for inferences. She talked at one point about, and I think it was object lessons in that chapter, she talked about what is a better way to teach is just by looking at a thing at the dinner table. And talking about it. So you look at you look at the bread you're eating and you talk about its size and its weight and its mass and will it float, will it not float, what color is it, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so you you understand what a piece of bread is and how it relates to the things around it. And then you can learn the science of it later and say, Oh, it floats because it has buoyancy or it's it it has air pockets. Uh, lava rocks float because they're porous and they're light. Other rocks don't because they're dense. You can learn those terms and put scientific terms to truths that you've observed. Mm -hmm. Or you can learn that the things that you've observed are not actually quite the way things work. And so it makes sense to me that you would just have young children observe the world around them. And, and learn how to observe the world around them. And, and very intentionally and carefully. Yeah. So, so it's not just a go look at it, which is kind of what I've been doing. So <laughs> thanks, Miss Mason. I need to get better at that. Right. But, but it's, it is a, a 
specific, learn, observe, write, uh, find out what you are learning. Right. And touch it and feel it and taste it and smell it and, and, and find these properties of it. Right. And how it relates to the things around it. Mm-hmm. So she talks about. So that's her first thing. That's the first thing is that we need to treat or we need to train children to observe the world around them. Um, Backing up just slightly. Okay. She has a little bit of a poem here. The breathing balm, the silence and the calm of mute insensate things. That is her favorite poet, William Wordsworth. I don't know if that's actually her favorite poet, but she quotes him a lot. So I just want to throw that disclaimer out there. (laughs) It's a poem called Three Years She Grew. Interesting tidbit. Yeah. I will forget that now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just tangenting here. I didn't grow up reading or wanting to read poetry. Mm -hmm. It didn't make sense. But... She's quoted this guy so many times that I might, you know. Go find him. Go find some of his stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that uh, transitions us right directly into the next point. Art. Great ideas demand great art. And I like midway through this section here, she's got, she says this. She says, art is great only in perception to the greatness. Right? What did I say? Perception. Wow. I'm real good at reading. Art is only great in proportion to the greatness of the idea that it expresses. While what we ask of the execution, the the technique, is that it shall be adequate for the inspiring idea. So art is only as good as the idea it expresses. If you have a piece of art that's been, that's very technically done, it's been executed really nicely it's a it's a very technical sound piece of art but it doesn't express an idea then i mean it's technically cool but it's not great art it's not high art it's not high art. she says here mere technique however perfect whether painting or carving or musical composition it's not necessarily high art right so even the art that children do or the stick figures that I draw, so long as they're conveying an idea, they can be considered high or great art. I don't know that I would go that far. Probably not. <laughs> but but that – I always had an but, aversion. But I mean that's where Picasso comes in. Well, I always had an aversion to art because I'm not good at drawing things. Okay. Like I, I mean I'm good at drawing – straight lines i can draw a cube real good i I mean my job at this point is drawing circles and dollar signs on paper because those are electrical symbols and that's what i do all day but that's not that's not art that's just putting symbols on a page so someone can build a building and yet the drawings that i draw and produce and stamp and send out they convey an idea of what the building will become Mm -hmm. and so and this is something we talk about in in the industry is that a well put together set of drawings, architectural, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, structural, civil, you know, all of those different disciplines together, a well put together set that's been purposefully designed and crafted, meticulously drawn on the paper so that it looks good, that conveys the idea of what the building is to become so much better than if you just kind of throw it all on the piece of paper haphazardly without any rhyme or reason. All the information is there, hmm. but it doesn't convey the idea as well as if you carefully and meticulously put it on. So even in my industry, which is, I mean, the engineering side, we could care less about the artistic side of it. But just for the simple fact of we want to get the buildings built right because it saves everybody money, we end up putting together pieces of art mm-hmm. because it conveys an idea. That's an interesting okay. take because I, I, don't, I don't see that here. I see the architecture side here where, where we are looking at the physical, either the painting or the carving or listening to the music or seeing the building. I see that side in this section where we, we inspire our children with these great ideas and which in turn creates a demand for them to create or 
appreciate that great art. But seeing that that backside of it's really cool too. The yeah. Fact, the fact that that you can make a a piece of art in almost any field. Yeah. Honestly, it didn't hit me until I was reading through this quote and I realized that, oh, we, we do that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, art, art is good. And, and like you were saying, we inspire our children with those great ideas with art. And so keep, keep beautiful art, keep good art in your house. And permit no pseudo art to be in the same house with our children. So art twaddle. Basically. No art twaddle. Which I'm excited she's actually going to write twaddle here in a minute. We'll get there. Uh, we are. We'll We're, get there. We'll get there. Children should learn to care for books. We wish the children to grow up to find joy and refreshment in the taste, the flavor of a book. We do not mean by a book any printed matter in matter in binding but a work possessing certain literary qualities able to bring that sensible delight to the reader, which belongs to a literary word fitly spoken. Words are mighty both to delight and inspire. She's talking about it's a sad fact that we're losing our joy in this literary form and just facts and theories and the -hmm. latest tabloid and light reading and all of these things have are starting to catch our fancy right and distract us and well you even look at newspapers from the the time period or popular books there now. are no pictures right and it's like just a massive page of tiny types a wall of text yeah uh you talk to i talk with people because i i love fantasy books i love sci-fi books the vast majority of books written in that field are young adult books. They're written with the expectation that children are going to read them. And a lot of adults I talk to haven't read the, uh, the classics or the high literate, the, the, the literature of that genre. They haven't read Tolkien. They haven't read George R. R. Martin. They haven't read A Wheel of Time. All all of those books that are that are massive, thick volumes that contain huge amounts of plotline and and world building and all of those things, people are interested in the quick hitting, the Hunger Games, the, the Harry Potter, yeah, the Hunger Games and Harry Potter, where the world of the Hunger Games is fascinating to me, but the book is juvenile, juvenile, which is is not a bad thing, but if I'm going to read a book about the Hunger Games, like I I, I read through that trilogy. And when I finished reading the trilogy, the only thing going through my head was, well, I want to know more about everything. I want to know the history. I want to know why these people did what they did. I want to know how how Katniss fits into everything else going on, because the, those books, if you've not read if you've not read them, they're written from a first person perspective, and so it's her story through her eyes, and she's just kind of. She's a stick into the middle of she's everything. A, yeah, she's a stick in a river that just kind of goes down the river. But that's about it. She's just moved along by everything. And I want to know who the movers and shakers are in that world. She runs into a, a rock and starts blocking the water. That also so happens. So they have to do something to, yeah, to so change she, it. Yeah, so she diverts the stream and then the movers and shakers have to figure out how to how to get her out of the way. But we don't get any of that. All you get is her story and the boys that she pines after. And how she's so sad about her life. <laughs> and, oh, man, people have died. And sure, there's there's value in that. But I, I want more when I read that book. So, you know, when I talk to people about the books they read, I hear a lot that they're reading, you know, young adult fantasy. And when I look at the library for books to read, I come across a lot of young adult fantasy. I'm like, well, I mean, that sounds kind of cool, but I know it's going to be shallow. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to waste my time reading something shallow because I don't have time to waste. Yeah. Not when there's so much better, so much better out there. So much more better? Yep. There's the most betterest book that I need to read. That'd be The Wheel of Time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So then we move into talking about... Well, this is this is an interesting quote. In literature, 
as an art, we require more than just mere form. Again, not just the technique, not just the, um, the way you see it. Great ideas are brooding over the chaos of our thought. That's quite the sentence. I know, right? <laughs> and it is he who shall say the thing we are all dumbly thinking. Who shall be to us as a teacher sent from God? So he who can pull out the truth from that chaos is the one who can, who, who is like a teacher. Yeah. Who sees, who broods over the chaos, who sees it. And then he pulls out the one string that makes it all fall apart and go, this, this is, this is the truth in this situation. I see that almost, I think differently. So the great ideas are there. Here's us. And the, the, the person who's a teacher sent from God can pull from the great idea and show it to us within our chaos to make our chaos make a little bit more sense. Oh, that makes sense too. Very artistic of her. <laughs> <laughs> so the children, what do they need? Well, they must grow up upon the best. There must never be a period in their lives when they are allowed to read or listen to twaddle or reading made easy. There is never a time when they are unequal to worthy thoughts. Well put. Inspiring tales well told. Never a time. And there must never be a period in their lives. So even when they're learning to read. Have them read good books that talk about real things. Blake's Songs of Innocence is a collection of illustrated lyrical poetry. And he actually printed and illuminated the first ones. Illuminated? It says illuminated, but I'm guessing illustrated. Um, in <laughs> Welcome to Wikipedia. That, right? In 1789. So these are about 100 years old. And there's a companion... Songs of Experience. So Songs of Innocence is more towards children or from the perspective of children. And then um, Experience is the other state. Interesting. And he was 1757 to 1827, an English poet, painter, and printmaker. And he was largely unrecognized during his lifetime. Welcome to being an artist. So that is... Blake. Defoe is Daniel Defoe. Not Willem? No. Sad. That was my thought, too. <laughs> so he was born in 1660, died in 1731. So this is almost 150, going on 200 years. He was an English trader, writer, journalist, pamphleteer, and spy. He wrote Robinson Crusoe. Oh, Okay. Which is second only to the Bible in its number of translations. Wow. And apparently there's an entire genre, like the Robinson genre. I should probably read this book. <laughs> yeah, me too. Hmm. Stevenson is Robert Louis Stevenson. I know that name. That's because those the poems we're reading. The Children's Garden of Verses. Oh, that's why I know it. Um, he was 1850 to 1895. He was 44 when he died. Oops. He was a Scottish novelist and a travel writer. And he also wrote Treasure Island, Kidnapped, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and The Children's Garden of Verses. That's, that's why I know his name is uh, those other ones. Okay. So those are those are the three authors that she pulls out by name. As this is your standard. This is your bar for poetry. Mm -hmm. This is your bar for prose. And if we train the a race of readers to demand this literature, then that's what people will make and, and produce. Mm -hmm. This next, this last sentence in this section, perhaps a printed form to the effect that gifts of books to the children will not be welcome in such and such a family, would greatly assist in this endeavor. So she says, the don't thing. allow twaddle. These are the books that we want. Have your book list, your gift list, say that children don't need books. 
Yeah. Have your Christmas list say, don't buy us books. Don't buy us books. And if you do, buy this one. And only no, no. this it one. It doesn't say, and if you do, buy this. It just says, well, I realize we do that. not welcome. I, I but what if you don't hilarious. have the book? I find it hilarious. It is. It is quite funny. Because that once Charlotte you, Mason is telling people, don't buy books for this family. Don't, don't buy books for the family because they have enough books already. There was a... Uh, there was a question that went out at one point and it was if you could have it's the the dumb desert island question if you're stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life and you can only have five books what are your books and it was an interesting thought you can do it with movies or video games or that's that's the fun one like you can have one video game for the rest of your life on a desert island all by yourself what is it What's your choice? I have no idea. Oh. <laughs> but it's an interesting thought. And the the same here. Like if you can only have but so many books, well, that's what she's saying. You only need but so many books. You only need the best ones. Mm-hmm. You don't need all of the books. Yeah. So in- interesting thought. And no, I have no idea what my video game would be. So she moves into this next section, the solidarity of the race. And I'm not – this section felt very out of place because it seems like what she's saying here is that if all of us read the same books, then all of us are going to be on the same plane of existence. And – or something. I I don't know. I I didn't I didn't get this section. I I don't understand. There is a reaching out in all directions after the conception expressed in the words solidarity of the race. We have probably never before never before felt as now in absolute relation with all men everywhere. Everything human is precious. The past belongs to us as the present does. Present does. And we linger tenderly over evidences of personality of men and women who lived ages ago. I think this has a lot to do with the availability of information. Oh. The fact that we can live the lives of those people back then because, you know, printing press has been around for a while, but how cheap are books? Right. How How, how inexpensive. How, how accessible. How much can we get information to and from from each other? How can we how can we know what's happening in China or in the United States or in Africa or mm. these far reaches? The globe is getting smaller. And I think that has a lot to do with what she's talking about here. Where this this writer, and I I don't know who the American poet is, he is the soldier wounded in battle. You can get close enough to somebody's experience that that you are feel like you're there. Hmm. You can get close gotcha. enough to experience of a galley slave. And I think skipping on a little bit, this sisterhood of common sisterhood of women brought home in a way never to be forgotten. She was driving from station to station and saw a, a drunken woman carried on a door. And that that person, and I think this is a, an experience that Charlotte Mason had when she says the present writer recollects. So that that person there was mysteriously a part of me. The, the, the suffering that she is dealing with and experiencing, I also experience as her sister, as a mm. part of the human race. And that's where the the great hearts of the world, these shocks of recognition, Elizabeth Fry, William Wilberforce, and Florence Nightingale. Elizabeth Fry is Betsy Fry, the English prison reformer, social reformer, referred to as the angel of prisons. She was the driving force between legislation to make the treatment of prisoners more humane. So she saw the plight of somebody, not herself. A fellow person, a fellow 
what is it? The solidarity of the race, a fellow, a fellow human being, a fellow human being, and work to change that. William Wilberforce, a British politician, philanthropist, and leader of the movement to abolish the slave trade. Yeah, he he um, campaigned for twenty years for the passage of the Slave Trade Act, and then later in thirty three, in eighteen thirty three, he campaigned again. So that's another. 20, 25 years, the Slavery Abolition Act, which abolished slavery in most of the British Empire. And he died three days after hearing that it passed. Wow. So that was his life, was yeah. to abolish slavery. He wasn't a slave. He saw his fellow human right. suffering and acted upon that. Florence Nightingale was the English social reformer and the founder of modern nursing. She came into prominence during the as a manager and trainer of nurses during the Crimean War, where she organized care for the wounded soldiers. She was known as the, the Lady of the Light or something, huh. where she would visit the soldiers at night. And in, in her social reforms included improving health care for all sections of British society, better hunger relief in India, helping abolish the prostitution laws that were harsh for women. Okay. And expanding the acceptable forms of female participation in the workforce. So they they all see this problem outside themselves. And they all act on it. And act on it because of this solidarity. So that makes sense then. When she moves into the next section, she says, children should be brought up to live for all men. The tender sympathy of the child must be allowed to flow in ways of help and kindness towards all life that anyway touches his. Well, even even backing up, we venture to believe that this is the stage which the education of mankind, as divinely conducted, has reached in our day. In other days, they did it for the love of God, or to save their own souls. They up acted uprightly, because it behooves them to be just. But the motives which stir us are now more intimate, tender, indefinable, and soul-compelling. So changing the impetus, because we now have been educated more. The mankind has been educated more. Gotcha. So then we need to to teach our children in, in the same vein and in the same light. Yep. Common life in humanity has come upon her realizing that somebody is poor no home no food no bed where we should shield them from intense suffering but not all suffering this little girl can help and then the pain of sympathy ceases to be too much because she can do something she can to do help something it. to help well that make okay so that makes a whole lot more sense then she goes from she goes from literature to the world's getting smaller and we're starting to understand each other better and we're starting to be able to live – we're starting to be able to put ourselves in someone else's shoes easier. And so therefore we're learning to care for other people better. Mm-hmm. So therefore we need to teach our children to be even better than us at caring for other people. Yeah. Okay. I can I can see that that flow of logic now. That makes a lot more sense. So the next section – is children should not hear of imposters. And this was another one I'm not... I'm guessing it's, you know, people who are you know, pretending to to be in need. Either pretending to be in need or pretending to care? Maybe. She says, let us be careful how we breathe the word imposter into the ear of a child until until he is old enough to understand that if a man is an imposter... That does but make him the object of a deeper pity and a wiser help, a help whose object is not to relieve, but to reform. That reminds me of, there are any number of people, panhandlers, uh, people who who uh, beg for money, who are not poor, who, due to the place they beg for money or other situations, they actually have lots of money. And you can look it up on YouTube or I guess Google it. But but there are videos of people who are who watch the panhandler go from the corner 
into a store, a fast food store or something, and then come out of the store wearing different clothes and go into a very nice fancy car. Hmm. Like, well, but you were just standing on the corner saying you were poor and had no money and you're getting into a Lexus. Like, really? What's going on here? And if you, if not a lot of those videos work out well because the people get very defensive, but if you actually get some of those people talking, they're like, I make a killing by asking for money. People just give me money. And so I make more money standing on a corner asking for it than I ever could trying to work. Mm -hmm. So I just stand on the corner and ask and I play the part, which means we don't need to pity those people because they have no money. We need to pity them because they're morally bankrupt. Yeah. And that's, that's the case where education comes in to, to develop the character. And that's where she's, relief is not the um, object, but reform is. Right. And education. That reminds me also, I was reading about the two very different types of homeless, homelessness. One is, you know, transient people choose to be homeless and that's the life that they want almost Mm -hmm. as opposed to this is forced upon me and i am trying to get out of this where where you can where you can provide you know the the object of relief you can provide housing and that doesn't solve the problem the 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 overwhelming problem of homelessness the mental problem right where reform and trying to get to the the heart of that matter is. Because if a person wants to be completely free from financial responsibilities or the need to go to work every morning, uh, I was reading a story about a couple who live in the parks in downtown Boise. And that's just, that's where they live. And they're, they're, they're an old couple who are both out of broken relationships and now they just live together by the river in the middle of the city. And when it gets cold, they go to a couple of the shelters in town and they eat at the soup kitchens and that's their life. And that's the life that they're choosing to live. And I don't know how to feel about that because good for them for, for living the life that they want to live But at the same time, the people who are giving to the soup kitchen are trying to help people who can't get food, who don't have the ability to make money or get food. And if you're choosing to live a life of that, I, I I don't, I don't know. Well, and that's where it comes back to what she's saying. She says, whatever our own opinion of the world and of human nature, whatever our opinion about those people or or anything, let's be careful how we breathe the word imposter into the ear of the child. Yeah, that makes when sense. When they're young. Let, let's not let them hear us deride them under our breath. Oh, they're, they're just an imposter. They're, they're, not, they're not really they're homeless. Not they're not really poor. poor. Gotcha. So that that connection when they're too young isn't made when they, they can't understand that. That makes sense. So that that's where she's going in, with this, I think. She's not trying to solve the problem. She's trying to help us educate and grow our children so that they will be of a culture to want to solve the problem. Well, and they're not cynical. Right. So that this, this girl on the, the last page who saw this – this um, a girl of five who came in from a walk distressed. She saw this person, saw the the condition that they were in, and wanted to help. Right. So we don't go. Oh, that's he's just an imposter. So this five year old's going, but but I don't understand. I cannot comprehend that because you no know, reaching back. Right. They don't have that experience. Yeah, they're ignorant. They're ignorant, and and you don't want to destroy that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and, and she, she continues on with this thought. She says, again, children are open to vanity as to all other evil dispositions possible to human nature. They must be educated to give and to help without any notion 
that to do so is goodness on their part. They need to learn to give and to help just because. Because they can. Because they have that ability to. Not because it's going to make them feel better. I'm do- I'm doing good not to help you, but because it's good for me. Right. Yeah. And it, it leads into how do we train our children and how do we bring them alongside of us as as giving some manner of help at real cost to himself. And that's italicized, at real cost to himself. She emphasizes that. And then when he's old enough, then the object lessons of the newspapers can be brought before him. And that's, that's again, when he's old enough to have these things. The atrocities in Armenia, for instance. It's massacre of 1894 to 1896. And it was estimated that between 80,000 and 300,000 people died, resulting in 50,000 orphan children. So so she's talking about this huge thing. And then the world wars hadn't happened yet, but I'm guessing she would talk about them in the same way. When he's old enough, the object lessons in the newspapers, these massive atrocities can be brought to them. But they need they don't need to be brought to the child when the child is so young as to be unable to comprehend what's going on or what to do. So let them know of any distress which would naturally come before them and let them ease their own pain by alleviating in some way the sor- sorrows alleviating in some way the sor- the sufferings they sorrow for. So children were not given to us with infinite possibilities of love and pity that we might choke the springs of pity and train them to hardness of heart. It's our part to prepare these little ministers of grace for the larger and fuller revelations of the kingdom of heaven that is coming upon us. So it's walking that fine line between how much we shelter them and how much we expose to them. Right. Well, and we want to expose to them enough so that they can learn those lessons of life. And we want to shelter them enough so that they don't go callous to the world. Or despairing. Or or despairing of the world. And that's going to be different for every child and every family and in every situation and time and location. That's there's There's no age. Notice she doesn't put an age here. No. She doesn't say, okay, at seven years old, now you can read the newspaper. She doesn't. She says when he is old enough. And she does put ages at other things. She so. does. She absolutely does. Uh, it's looking, it, even looking at our children, uh, Naomi really has a hard time even watching movies that have slightly scary things in them. Uh, she's okay hearing books about very scary things. But man, when it comes to a movie, she just, she can't handle it. Mm-hmm. And so for her, her ability to deal with things is going to be very different from the rest of our children because she's an individual and children are persons. Yep. Hey, full circle. Whew. So yeah, that was a, that was a chapter. It, it helped to walk through that with you because, because that one, that one was tough. That one was a rough chapter that she, she went a lot of different places, and and it did. It, it helped tremendously to talk through it and to walk through it. So having said that, dear listener, if you're still here because it's now been a while, if you find that there's value in these conversations that Crystal and I have with each other and you find that you enjoy them, let us know. It would be great to hear from you. Or let other people know that you found value in in our conversation and tell them to give us a listen. Or, which, you know, doesn't do us any good, but go find somebody else. Read the book and talk to somebody else in person. Absolutely. And have that conversation. And and find that local local group or local person to, to bounce these ideas off of. Absolutely. I guess I should not be selfish. <laughs> <laughs> we want to be a substitute, another voice in the conversation, but I, I don't think that 
this is something that you should do alone. Well, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that people have such a hard time getting through these books is they're not talking about them. Because this would, gosh, even, I like I said, it took me three read-throughs of this just to get where I was. And walking through this, there were any number of sections where I was throwing my hands up going, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And through through talking with it and working through it, we came up with, I feel like it was a pretty good. And looking up some things. Looking up some things. <laughs> and I feel like we came up with a pretty good understanding of this chapter now. I think I could read this chapter again and and glean a lot more from it. Because I understand where she's coming from, where she's going, and a lot of the pieces in the middle. So when I come back to reading this book in a couple of years, I should be able to read it and remember these things and get something more out of it. But it was only through the act of reading it, writing it, and talking about it that we were able to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Well, and frankly, if it was just up to me, I would have read this whole chapter and be like, what? I don't get it. Moving on. I, I, yeah, that's true. I wouldn't have read it multiple times. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have cared enough to dig into it because I didn't get it the first read through. So I wouldn't have tried. Right. Well, and that's. And we're at the end of the book. I do that with the, the end, end of the books anyways. Right. You just ignore the end. I'm, I, I get to a <laughs> point about mm, three quarters four-fifths of the way through a book and just be like, okay, I'm done. Right. Whereas I, there's this was, this was a meaty chapter. I think there was a lot of value in this chapter and the last one too. But yeah, so yeah, find a, find a, find someone to talk to. Oh, that's what I was going to say. The, the main reason that, that we started this show, that we started these conversations was to force us to read through and talk about this book. Yep. Right. You guys are our accountability partners. Right? We Thank didn't, you. We didn't do this or set about this to make any money, to gain a fan base, to have a loyal Twitter following, which is good because we don't have a Twitter following. We have a few, I thought. Most of them are corporate people. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's like curriculum people or schools or something. It's weird. But that's not that's not why we got into this. It's a it's a cool side benefit, and if we can, I don't know if we can leverage that to turn into something else. That'd be great. But that's not no the 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 purpose for doing this is to read it, to understand it, and to be held accountable to be to reading it. Right. So. Again, thank you for being our accountability partners. Our, our silent, our silent partner that's nebulous and out there until you become not silent or nebulous and say something. So, yeah, thanks, thanks everybody for listening. And I don't know, I don't have anything else. That's all for now. That'll work. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.